Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Yeah, I feel like today I'm just having as much fun as I can have because I'm hanging with friends and I am having so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed the last half hour of the conversation I had with Jeffrey Dorn and Dr. Peter Kapsner. I've, I've twisted Peter's arm. I said, stay a little while longer. I know you got to get home and be helpful with the family tonight. I do, I do, but but when you issued the order, I mean, I just, you know, it, yeah, when I, I, order, I just yield I immediately. I, I yield immediately. But Jeff Dorn is uh, my guest, my primary guest this hour, and we're going to continue our Bible Bible study, and we're already at 6.01, and I don't know if we got anywhere to go after this. Hopefully, maybe one graduate level course. Isn't 6.01 graduate that's level already? Up, that's or? definitely upperclassmen. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, we'll see what happens after this. We'll see. We, we had uh, part five, uh, 5.01 last week, or a couple weeks ago, and we didn't get it all done. We had... 20 Christian Essentials. We got through 10, so we have 10 more to go. Maybe give us a, a quick recap of maybe three from the first 10, and then we'll jump into the last 10. Sure. Well, it's a list of 20 truths as we moved from talking about uh, the Bible and its inspiration and how we got it and so on. We switched in Bible 501 last week uh, in this two-part series on what's in the Bible. What are the truths described in the Bible? So we actually started with kind of the nature and character of God, the concept of the the Trinity, the inspiration of the Scripture, uh, man and man's creation, and uh, Adam and the uh, the fall of Adam, and man's problem is sin and death. And so we uh, we ended last week with God's desire. He knows that mankind now has a problem. They've died spiritually. They're separated from Him. But there's this truth in Peter that says that he wishes none to perish but all to come to repentance. And we finished last week with that is God's heart. That's his heart for all mankind, that all would believe and be saved. I like. Yeah. So then this week, we're picking up on number 11, which if that is man's problem, what's God's solution? I bet he's got one. He does. And I love the passage. There's a passage in Romans 5 that says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So Jesus came, and so we have the incarnation of Christ. God became flesh and dwelt among the people. So you have passages like uh, that he is called, his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Um, And he is the, he's God in the flesh. Do you remember when Philip said, hey, Jesus, show us this God? And Jesus says, oh, you don't understand. Have you been with me all this time and you don't recognize? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so in Jesus's incarnation, God has become flesh. And that's a great mystery. How does an eternal, infinite God take the form of human flesh? And yet that is precisely what Scripture says. So there's another a number of passages where it says, that who being the very nature of God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, Philippians 2. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the exact representation of his being. 
And Hebrews 2 says, since he has children with flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Yet, now he was made like his brothers in every way, Scripture says, yet there's one difference. He was without sin, Scripture says, and that's why he can be the perfect sacrifice. But right now, in his incarnation, that's the truth. How did God become flesh? How did God, the creator of the universe, you know, I often describe, if you knew at the cross that this Jesus character is the creator of all things, became a man and came to, to men, and then men kill God. What an amazing thing. But I don't know if you have insight on Jesus's incarnation, on how God became flesh. I have always loved the passage, but though I don't claim to understand it in, in its fullness from First John 1, talking about the incarnation of the word of life, it says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So this, this Jesus, this word becoming flesh, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. So there was something about the animating reality of the flesh that was exactly what this life that God has always enjoyed has been from the beginning. I. I love the the picture that C.S. Lewis gives us of the Aslan character. When yeah. Aslan shows up and everything is becoming spring again, all of the world is beginning to thaw, right? So somehow everywhere Jesus went, it was the very life of God was manifested with him. I don't know how to process that exactly and how that was in his flesh, but there was something about the essence of God that got wrapped up in this human form. Indeed. And, you know, you go right from that passage to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, who is God, became flesh. Hmm. And yet, you know, there's there's a great mystery of how the infinite creator of all can, can come. You know, the, I, see if you like this analogy. I've often equated it to a king sitting in his castle up on his throne with his royal robes and his crown and everything, and he said, oh, I got to go down to the people. And he takes his crown off and he sets it on his throne and he takes off his robe and he puts on peasant garb and he starts walking among the people. And you think about this, the Jews didn't recognize him, right? Well, if the king is walking around in peasant garb saying, I'm the king, how many people are really going to believe him, right? But that is kind of the picture of what I have of God coming down to his creation as a man. Good, valid. Do you think I, like, I think it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. And, and my understanding, Jeff, is that that's what makes Christianity unique among all of the religious claims that are, have been non-Christian traditions. Is this is the only God that has decided to condescend in that way to take on human form? It's always about how can we somehow get to God, and God came to us. That that is an almost absurd claim when you just sit back and think about it. The Creator of the universe came to us in that way. That's how I like to describe religious systems of the world. It's every religious system of the world is. What we have to do in order to get closer to God, to achieve nirvana, to get to paradise, to get to whatever. And Christianity is about what God has done, becoming a man and dying on the cross for us, what he's done for us. So Mm. quite a contrast. So he came, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he came to atone for sin. He came to be that sacrifice for sin. That's why John the Baptist in John chapter 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First Timothy 2 says that he gave himself as a ransom for all men. He tasted death for everyone. First John 2, 2 says this, He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. So Christ, as the Lamb of God, died for the sins of the world. That is what atonement means. That First John 2, 2, in the King James, it uses the word propitiation, a big word. But he atoned. He was the sacrifice for sin. Remember, the Old Testament says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was our Passover lamb is the imagery that's used. So Israel celebrated this Passover from the time of the Exodus on. Every year they celebrated. They would take the lamb, they'd sacrifice it, and it would atone for their sins. Well, the moment, and we've done this before in the final week of Christ's life, the moment when Israel is sacrificing their lamb for the Passover that year, I believe in 32 AD, Christ is on the cross dying for the sins of the world. Wow, right? That's the atonement. So that's number 12, atonement for sin. All right, let's move on to resurrection. Another great Christian essential truth. So 13, the resurrection, you know, this is one, um, I I actually don't have a lot of notes on this one, but it's probably the most important one in this entire list. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead have not been raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you are still dead in your sins. Simply, the resurrection is absolutely critical to Christianity. Mm-hmm. There is no Christianity without it. Yeah, I, that that is a verse that unfortunately I think came a little later in my life because I, I have been so appreciative, I think, as we all are, of the great reconciliation that happened at the cross on Good Friday. But Paul makes this crazy claim, right, that says, but if the resurrection hadn't happened, your faith is in vain. So whatever happened at the cross, as important and critical, and it is in all the ways important and critical as we've, we've imagined it to be, but what is it about the resurrection then that if it hadn't happened, we actually wouldn't have a faith? And there's something about Jesus conquering the power of sin and death, not just dying for the sins from the atonement standpoint, but then going into the waters of death and conquering its power that, I don't know what you have all heard about this, but, it, but it's been something in my last maybe four to five years uh, of walking out this journey is of what does it mean to live within the resurrection life that he says will now impart to his new people that he's, he's grafting in as part of his church. He says, you will live by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, according to Romans 8. That was stuff that was pretty foreign to my experience growing up. Yeah, this resurrection power is now at work in us, right? That's a huge claim. It is. That's amazing. And you think about Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago. Hmm. Why have I been crucified with Christ, right? So, but it's this concept that the old self has been crucified, and we've been raised in newness, right? Anybody who's in Christ is a new creation. We're born again, born from a God. We now have life and that's that concept. And that new life by the resurrected power of, of Christ himself is in at work in us. I mean, that's, that's the power that you have as a Christian. So should you live in fear? Should you live in doubt? We were last half hour, we were talking about doubt. Um, if you have the, the resurrected power of Jesus Christ in you, how is that going to help you live your life today? Oh, great point. Let's take a little break. You're listening to Jeff Redorn and Dr. Peter Kapsner has stayed with us, which makes me very happy. We're continuing our Bible Bible series. We're 601. We'll be right back. Never win. 
Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our Bible Bible study. We're in 601. Dr. Peter Kapscher is stuck around. Very glad that he has uh, stayed with. And the verse that I didn't get a chance to talk about during the break is out of Ephesians chapter 1, starting in 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Well, yowzers. That's the power available to us. Yeah, it's in us. Yes, it's in us. Yeah, that's the that's that is you know I have a pastor friend he talks about that Galatians two twenty verse about plugging into the two twenty, right? <laughs> yeah. As Christians, we need to plug into that two twenty. We need to understand that we've been crucified with Christ and that we've been raised with Him by the same power that raised Him from the dead. Cool. Hmm. And you... by the way, just as He's been raised, so too we will be raised. So there is a future resurrection coming for everyone who is born again. That is the glorification of this body. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but he has a new glorified body waiting for every believer. Paul calls this body we're in now an earth tent, right? This tent of my body. We are dwelling in a temporary dwelling, but he has a permanent eternal body waiting for us, and that's the glorified body that comes at our resurrection. Hmm. And, I, and I've wondered in light of that too, Jeff, how do, how do we live by what Bill just read from Ephesians? Like, I just, I really want to think about that passage that you just read. So within these corruptible still mortal tense that, that we do need to set aside at some point to be raised incorruptible, but how do we live by this sort of natural, supernatural power, right? Like what, how, how do we, how does it work together that we are working with the actual spirit? And what does that mean for the kind of power that is possible? And I don't just mean like some sort of big overt miraculous power, just what power is possible that could animate us? I'm, I'm guessing that there's a lot of us that have followed Jesus for a while that wonder about what that power could be like in our lives. I also think we, especially in the West, we tend to be blind to that power in the sense that we're pretty comfortable in the West, right? We don't have to really trust God. Mm. We, there well, are people around point. the world that that really have to trust God for their very being, for their necessary daily food and you know, I, I've I've met a fortunate to meet a, a few that I'll call them giants of faith from countries like Vietnam or wherever who have seen family members killed because of their Christian faith or who have been imprisoned and tortured because of their Christian faith. And uh, I can tell you all the study in this world uh, is helpful for sure, but uh, their faith is giant. And I find myself, when you tell those sorts of stories, then it reveals maybe a disconnect in which I'm living as somebody who really does believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's all the things that we claim it to be doctrinally, just proven itself over and over that way. But then why do I have to hit myself upside the head so often to say, why why am I giving this just kind of a passing nod? Well, that was nice, Bill, that you read that passage in Ephesians. That sounds great. And, And then I'll kind of give it a passing nod and move on with my day as opposed to maybe sitting, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go on a journey with God for the next month or two or six or something and try to really wonder what this whole invitation is from the authoritative inspired scripture that I claim it to be. Maybe I could actually, maybe God actually means this stuff. And what would it mean <laughs> to, to start really wanting to walk in those ways? What, what might I discover in, mm-hmm. in so doing? I think we get this, I'm going to wrap this up into the concept of our identity in Christ. And I think we as Christians get into trouble because we do not fully understand our identity, our mm. true identity in Christ Jesus. Mm. 
So, All right. I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the room right now, but let's move on to the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> so if Jesus has been raised, we have this thing called the gospel. And Paul tells us, it's fascinating. Ask the next Christian, if you know some Christians, ask them, well, tell me, tell me what, what is the gospel biblically? And see what answers you get, because it's fascinating. Mm. Paul actually describes what is the gospel that he receives, that he passes on to us of first import, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. This is 1 Corinthians 15. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to many. Um, That is the gospel. That is the power unto God for salvation for whoever believes. So this is the truth claim that God has set out before men, the gospel that says Christ came and died for my sin, for your sin, for the world's sin. He was buried, but he conquered death, the resurrection that we just talked about, uh, truth number 13, and that people saw them. There were eyewitnesses to this, and they documented it in Scripture of this account of the resurrection. And, uh, and God says, now if you believed... That is, that is how you are saved. You believe. Like the jailer said to Paul, we're going to get to salvation here in, in next. What must I do to be saved? He asked Paul. And here's the simplicity of it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it's that simple. So truth number 15 is, by the way, that gospel message, I, I love to teach on Acts. There's seven great speeches in Acts. Each one of those speeches from Peter at the crowd of Pentecost to Peter at Cornelius' house to Paul in Athens in Acts 17 to Paul before Agrippa in Acts 26. They all have one single theme at the center of their message, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? That's, 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 cool. that's what the that's early really church cool. was concerned with bringing to the world is mm. the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Love it. All right, let's move on to salvation. Oh, well, we just said it. You know, when that jailer said, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say, well, give money to the poor. Uh, Go to church every Sunday starting next week. Um, (laughs) Tithe regularly. Uh, Follow all of the Old Testament commands. Uh, Do good. Be a good person. He didn't say any of that. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, I want to point out that this singular word believe in the Greek, if you know one Greek word, know this word. The Greek is pistuyo. And there's actually a two-part definition to this word that's really cool. And the fullness of pistuyo includes both of these definitions. Number one, believe it is true. Number two, entrust for salvation. So it's more than just this head knowledge, right? It's this heartfelt entrusting as well. That is the fullness of Pistuyo. Hmm. I love that, Bill. I, I mean, I don't. I know that you are the smartest in the room, but he's, he's giving he's giving you a run for the money right now. Well, I know. <laughs> I feel I feel the heat. Yeah, today. You, you should. That was. I mean, it's, but I think it's so interesting because that that kind of belief what you're talking about is a leaning into even if you might have doubt, right? Even and, and that doubt does get resolved the more you lean into. But we're not talking about. Uh, some sort of intellectual certainty of all things, that to activate the salvific work of God in your life is simply to just lean into, to surrender, to yield it. And and even if you don't understand fully, just lean into it anyway, and God will greet you in those places. You know, I I, I always think of the man at the cr- on the cross next to Jesus in this moment talking about this, because what you just described, how much theology, how much understanding Ugh. did that thief on the cross really understand? Now, I think theology is very important. Yeah. 
when you really start studying the Bible, these truths all start interweaving, and you just can't pull on one of these truths because it all starts to unravel if you pull on one. But how much did this man on the cross really understand? All he said was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he said. So he believed who this guy was, that it was true, and he was entrusting his life to this guy even though they were both about to die. I think that's biblical pastuyo, mm. biblical faith. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I think he was saved from it. I think that's very comforting, too, for many people who have lost loved ones yeah. who may have not lived for the Lord in their life but had a, a end-of-life conversion. Mm. May yeah. not have fully understood theology, but were able to put their faith and trust in Christ at the end. Yeah, for sure, Jeff. I mean, it calls to mind what you were saying earlier uh, from maybe last week, where it was that God would will that none would perish, right? God's desire is that all would be made whole. And so he's not going to say, well, you know, sorry, you just, you, you missed it uh, at that moment. If somebody wants to lean in and yield right at those last moments, then by all means, I mean, I think God's heart, is just so desirous uh, that his imagers would be saved, that that salvation would be acted out in their life. Now, call on the Lord and he will answer, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. So he stands at the door and knock. Whoever opens that door, he will come in and eat with them and they win with them. So hmm. uh, I think it's a, a simple picture. Now, salvation is very robust and I think if if I think every Christian should know uh, 10, 15 things that happen the moment you believe in and are saved, and that that includes things like you're you're forgiven, you're born again, you're born of God, you move from death to life, you get eternal life, you're made a new creation, you're you you receive the Holy Spirit, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're justified, redeemed, rescued, made children of God. I mean, all of these things that Scripture describes the moment you believe in and are saved are all God's work. He does all those. No one can forgive themselves, right? No one can make themselves a child of God. That's all God's work. So I think mm. the picture is we believe it's God who saves. Mm. I think we should talk, too, after the break, briefly about this identification, how important it is to identify who you are in Christ, but also the the expression uh, born again, which comes right out of John 3, 3, I think sometimes when people ask, are you one of those born-again Christians, they, they assume that you're categorized as some kind of extreme Christian. But there really is only one kind of mm. Christian, and that is a born-again Christian. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's all we need to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when we come back, we're going to continue our Bible Bible 601 with Jeff Verdorn. Peter Kapsner has stuck around, and I'm very glad he has. We'll be right back. Cool. Welcome to the show. We're talking about 20 essential Christian truths we all need to know. 
My guest is Jeff Verdorn, and Dr. Peter Kapsner was with us, and he just had to take off. But uh, right before we went to break, we were talking about being born again and how sometimes people put others in that category. Oh, you're one of those kinds of Christians, as if you are some kind of extremist, when there really is only one kind of Christian, and that is someone who has been born again. And I want to say a big hi to your, your parents, Sid and Carol. I know apparently your mom is listening. She is. Carol. Hi, Carol. <laughs> nice to have you listening. But you also have a great story about your mom's dinner party. I uh, did. So I'd love to hear that. I'd love for you to tell that story. I, 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 that truth that you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's right in John chapter three. So that you're, you're absolutely right. There is no other kind of true Christian other than a born again Christian. So yeah, my mom was uh, told me this her story a few years back that she was at a dinner party at her house and uh, she was talking to this lady and she was wearing a cross and she goes oh you're wearing a cross are you a Christian and the lady said yes but not one of those born again types <laughs> that goes exactly to what you just yeah. described mm-hmm. and and I I asked my mom it's like okay so then you said what and she goes oh nothing I didn't want to get into it with her. And uh, she asked me, she goes, well, what would, what would you have said? And I said, well, I probably would have said something like, well, you know, there's no other kind of Christian, right, other than a born-again Christian, and see where that led right. to and, and have the opportunity to describe that truth, that you must be born again to be a Christian. So, Yeah. All right. Thanks Let's, for the story, Mom, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. You know, when you're just hosting a party and people are assembling, you know, it's not probably the time to, to say, well, let's dig down into this. But maybe if you had an opportunity later in the evening to do so, it would have been appropriate or a follow-up conversation. But, yeah, it's uh, it's I, you hear that all the time. People think the born-again types are the nuts, people who are the nuts, the nutty Christians, but we're the only Christians out there. It is. The you know where that, some of that came from? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. It, absolutely. Yeah. He's called himself a born-again Christian, and kind of the secular media kind of mocked it and made fun of it. Yeah, let's just go back to the word. Jesus says, marvel not when I say you must be born again. <sighs> Pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's being that new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You move from death to life. This is just one of the ways that God describes what happens when you go from being lost to being saved. So, all right. Assurance, number 16. So once we understand this concept of being saved, this is, we we have to understand our assurance of our salvation. This is one of these topics that when I first started studying scripture, this issue of whether or not we could lose our salvation kept coming up in my own mind over and over. And you know what I did? I would read one guy, and he'd say, oh, yes, we're absolutely assured of our salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. But then I'd read another guy, another article or another book or another website or whatever, and it would say, no, you can lose your salvation, and that's a terrible doctrine, and, you know, and basically blast the idea that you can have assurance of salvation. And so I was tossed to and fro, if you will, as Scripture says, between the two. I actually emailed my pastor probably, I don't know, 25 years ago now and said, hey, I'm really struggling with this topic. Uh, Can you help me out? And he basically said, good luck with your studies. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, thanks a lot, you know. And I don't exactly remember which passage I was reading I think it was Ephesians 1. I bet it was. I've got it up. Do you read it? Yeah. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Hmm. And I remember reading and thinking, if I've received the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance, well, then, of course, my salvation is assured. It couldn't be any other way. Those, those words literally rang in my head. It can't be any other way. Now, here's the thing. As I started to read Scripture more and more and more, I kept coming across passage after passage after passage that declared that we were had a, this assurance of salvation. And so I started writing little ESs in my Bible, eternally secure, eternally secure, eternally secure. And all of a sudden, I found it was all over the place. Wow. And I, so I created this long list of assurance passages. And this is one of these truths that God says over, for example, in Romans 8, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 says, having begun a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians that you are not your own. You are bought at, at, at a price. You are God's possession, Ephesians 1 says. And if God owns you, if you're his possession, well, who can steal away one of God's possessions from God? Hmm. The answer is nobody can, right? And so over and over, 1 Peter 1 says that you're given this new birth and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power until that day. Um, so I think our salvation is secured not by what we do, but what God has promised. He promises to hold you in his hand, and nothing can take you out of his hand. So I think it's one of the one of the key doctrines to understand who we are in Christ, and that is that we have full assurance. We can know that we know that we know that we're going to heaven. That's why John ends his epistle, 1 John, I write these things to those of you who believe that you might know that you have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. Mm-hmm. Of course, um, the question that arises, Jeff, is can someone uh, push away or or renounce or go charging out of their relationship with God saying, I once believed and now I don't at all? Yeah, so we all know somebody like this, right? And it's interesting because people, I've been asked this question a lot over the years. It's like, well, what about my cousin? What about my brother? What about my brother? He did this and now he's doing this. And it's like, well, I cannot see that person's heart. So I, I have no basis for answering this question on any particular individual. But I can tell you theologically, there's only two possibilities. That is one, they were either never saved in the first place. And so they pretended to be in, in the faith. They just did church stuff for a while, and they walked away. They never truly believed and were saved. Or they were truly saved. They actually did believe. They were born again. And I believe that once you're born again, you're born again for all of eternity. You receive eternal life. You get that today. If you were to lose that, then you wouldn't actually have eternal life. It was something short of eternal, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's the what's the... What's the explanation? Well, I think the explanation is just like a little child who can get mad at their earthly parents and say, I hate you, Dad. I wish I was never born. I'm going to run away and never come back, right? What's for dinner? <laughs> What's for dinner? <laughs> but that kind of temper tantrum, I think that's if you are truly saved and you're renouncing faith, you're walking away, you're mad at God— 
I think it can be explained just like the little child. You're having a temper tantrum against your heavenly father. And uh, and 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 you're turning your back on on him who saves. So the, to to me, theologically, those are the only two possibilities. But for any individual, I can't tell you which one they are because I can't see their heart. Only God can see mm-hmm. their heart. John seventeen twelve just says Jesus states that he you know lost none of those given to him by the Father except the Son of Destruction. Yeah, there, there's this comes up over and over and over. There's so many passages that confirm this doctrine of assurance of salvation throughout the Gospels and throughout all of the New Testament. So, I, like I said, I think my list is like 20 pages long of passages wow. that uh, declare that we have assurance. It's, it's pretty simple if you think about it. Not simple, but all of the things that we just described that happen at the moment of salvation, if you were to lose your salvation, God would have to re-undo all the things that he did in your life. So you'd have to be unborn again. He would have to take his spirit back. You'd have to be unredeemed, unforgiven, unjustified. Yeah. He'd have to unmake you his child. Yeah. This there's no language like this in the New Testament anywhere, right? That he can that any and by the way, this whole crucified life and resurrected life, he'd have to crucified he'd have to crucified the resurrected you and resurrect the crucified you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's completely foreign concept to the New Testament. So there's so many things that God would have to undo and put you back in your sinfulness in order for you to lose your salvation. But thankfully, God says that he has begun a good work in you, and he will carry it out. Yeah. Joseph said, preach, Jeff. Preach, Jeff. Jesus, you're either for me or against me. <laughs> so true. It is. You either, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not, does not have life. Yeah. You're either in yep. or you're out. Yep. Awesome. The Holy Spirit, number 17. Okay. Um, are we going to get through it? Yeah, I think we will. We get got through. time, yeah. All right. So, once you are saved, and we already described this, one of the promises that the moment of salvation that you receive is the Holy Spirit. Um, so, this is one of these truths of Scripture that God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, comes and dwells within you. It says he baptizes every believer in the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's now empowering you. We talked about that resurrection power that is at work within us. Well, that is by the Spirit of God. He is now helping us to live this holy life that God calls us to live. Um, God says if we live by the Spirit... You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So as we seek God, as we fix our eyes on him, as we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and soul and mind, as we abide in him, our lives will start, will will characterize the truths in the New Testament more and more and more. And so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind. I'm not a naturally patient person, but as I trust in the Lord, I think more patience is displayed. You're smiling. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, true. You know that's true. That's yeah. Well, most true. guys are not that patient. Really. I know. Most that's a problem. Um, so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If you're missing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in your life, um, my exhortation, God's exhortation to you would be just trust in him more. Lean on him more, as Peter was saying earlier in the hour. Um, and then, of course, the, the great truth that says the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ, and he'll be with you for how long? 
forever. One more way that God has declared this assurance of salvation. He's never going to take his Holy Spirit from you. So that's what he does in believers. Just one more word on the Holy Spirit that, well, how does the Holy Spirit work in the world? And that is, Scripture says, he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is out in the world, I think, knocking on the on the door of every single person's heart in this world. And uh, all you have to do is answer that call. God's knocking on your heart. And all you have to do to be saved is answer that door. Open that door. That's a picture of faith, yeah. believing, pistuyo, that word we were talking about. And then he says, I will come in and be with you. That's yeah. a picture of salvation. And that day of life could be today for you. November 23rd, 2021. The day your life changes where you go from being dead in your sin to be a, being alive in Christ. Repent your and be saved. Birthday. Believe. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me take a little break. We'll come back, Jeff. We've got three more to go on 20 uh, essential Christian truths that we're talking about. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We'll be right back. Jeffrey Dorn, we're talking about 20 Christian essential truths, and we've got three to go, Christ's return, resurrection, and judgment, and eternity. And one quick question before we move on, though, Jeff. Hmm. I don't know if Jeff can answer this question for me, but I was wondering if people can sell their souls, and if they can, can they be bought back? Hmm. Um, whenever I hear the, the phrase, sold your soul, you know, to the devil. I always think of that Charlie Daniels song, you know, the devil went down to Georgia. Yeah. He was looking for some souls to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and on and on and on. <laughs> I, it was one of the songs I listened in high school. But um, I, I, th- I think you can give yourself over to the devil, if you will. Um, if, if you are not going to trust in God and give your life to him, you're going to give it to the world, the flesh, the devil, something else, right? We already and belong to the devil you, you if do. you're not part of God's family. Correct. And, uh, and I think there's, you know, I've often thought about certain artists and, and popular things that are so unbiblical and so ungodly, and yet they're so wildly popular in, in the world for some reason. And I, I can't help but think there's some spiritual thing going on with those with that. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, it's not a transaction. I mean, you're not selling your soul, but there are people who say, yeah, you know, devil, I'll do anything you want. And in a sense, you're selling your soul to your devil. Can you buy it back? Of course, it's never too late to turn. Uh, the biblical word is repent, to turn from the world to God. Um, so all the way up until the moment that you die, I, I think it's never too late for anybody. doesn't matter how many sins you've done, how bad the sins are. Paul said he was the worst of sinners, and yet God received him into the kingdom joyfully. Um, so wherever you're at, whatever sin you've done, Christ died for that sin too, and he offers you salvation. Okay, let's go to Christ's return, number 18. So I've read the back of the book, Bill. I know who I wins, to, Yeah. right? So 
Christ said that he is coming back. And there is a, he says at the very end of the book of Revelation, he says, I'm coming and I'm coming soon. And so there is a time when the Bible says that Jesus is going to come back. Revelation 19 actually paints the picture of Jesus riding on a white horse, coming back to tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And so he's going to come again and establish his kingdom for a thousand years. This is uh, in Matthew 24. It says that then they will see the sign in the sky uh, and they will see the Son of Man on the clouds with power and great glory. So I love that song, Behold He Comes Riding on the Clouds. Uh, and indeed, the, there is uh, one of the core truths of Christianity is that Jesus is going to come, come back again. That's why we pray, by the way, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are, there are, I'll make a contrast really quick. There are some in Christianity that, thinks that, that think that the kingdom of God started the moment Jesus went up to heaven and that we're in the kingdom right now. And it's like, well, wait a minute here. Open the newspaper up, please, and see what is the state of this world. And is this the kingdom of God on earth? I mean, it's far from it. The kingdom of God, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years, has certain characterizations that are described in Scripture, such as the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the lion will eat straw like the oxen, men will beat their weapons into plowshares, and there will be peace on earth. That's the thousand-year reign of Christ. This ain't it, right? Now, we as believers in Christ, are we participants of the kingdom? Yes, we are. But the picture is, is that we are ambassadors from this kingdom. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We are ambassadors from a foreign land. We are heavenonians, right? Our kingdom is in heaven. And he, Jesus, will return and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, and he will reign, and we will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's Christ's return. Now, part of that return is also this concept called the rapture. And you know that I love to teach on the end times, and especially about the rapture. Prior to Christ returning to earth, I believe he is going to receive the church unto himself. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. That's the rapture of the church. So I believe that prior to what's called the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, the church will be raptured up. We will be in heaven during that tribulation period, and we are seeing, actually in Revelation 19, the armies of heaven returning with Christ at the end of that seven-year tribulation when he then establishes his kingdom. Both of those, that whole sequence of events, are really Christ's return, both the rapture and the second coming. All right, so that's the rapture. Okay. Now we are at resurrection and judgment. We are. So both the Old and the New Testament declare that there is going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And depending on if you have life, depending on if you've believed and be saved, will determine which of these resurrections and judgments you will be a part of. For those who are not saved, they will be resurrected as part of what's called the second resurrection— And they will be brought before the great white throne judgment. That's judgment day. 
Their names will not be found in the Lamb's Book of Life, and Revelation 20 says that they will be thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. So that's what happens to those who don't believe. For those who believe and are saved, we will be resurrected to glory, right? This immortality. We were talking about our resurrected bodies, our glorified bodies earlier. That happens at the rapture, I believe. That is resurrection day. And we appear not before the great white throne judgment, but before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is where we are not, it's not so much a judgment, it's really an awards ceremony. This is described in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, and it's called the Bema Seat. And this is, there's actually a Bema Seat in Corinth that I think Paul was using for his example. And this was a raised platform, and often people would be rewarded there or crowned there. You know how Olympians stand up yeah. on a podium? Yeah. And they, they used to get a wreath or a right. crown on their head, and now we give medals. That's and the endorsements. And what? And big endorsements. And big endorsements <laughs> soon after that. Yeah. Or actually now before that, because That's you true. can actually get paid to compete in the Olympics. Uh, but that is the imagery that Christ is using for our judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And Jeff, how many people worry that they're going to get to this place and they're going to see a, a video review of their life in front of everybody and <sighs> feel mortified that, uh-oh, here it comes. I have actually had people in my classes over the years that have... Um, have been Christians for a long time, and they're, they've dreaded this day because it's been taught that suddenly when it's your turn up at the Bema seat, it's, you, there'll be this giant movie screen in the clouds, and everybody in heaven will watch your whole life. You want that to happen? No, thank you. I, I don't want that to happen. But well, they've dreaded. Why would the soil of sin be there at that moment? Absolutely. In fact, the picture in Corinthians, it says that it, that sin... That, that won't be rewarded is burned up. It's burned up at that, at that moment in that judgment seat of Christ. It's why would God, the God that, that remembers your sin no more but separates it as far as the east is from the west, why would he bring that all up again and show it and display it before heaven? I don't think that's the picture. It's not described in Scripture, and I just think it's a, a misteaching of the Bema seat. I think the answer is, is that Everything that's worthless will be burned up. What remains is what will be, we will be rewarded for. So as we, remember the vine and the branches? Mm-hmm. As we abide in Christ and he bears the fruit, I think that's precisely what we will get rewarded for, is that fruit. And the rest is burned up. All right, we better hurry. Oh, we're, yeah. we're down to our last one, which is eternity, and you've got about two and a half minutes. Good luck. So after this thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, after the great white throne judgment, judgment day, God tells us about our eternal state, and that is that he makes the, the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, for the old nature of things have passed away, and he makes this earth and heaven, which are apart today, but for all of eternity, will come together, and he makes it all new. Think of the Garden of Eden, where he makes everything new again. And he says of this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem that nothing unrighteous will ever enter into it. That's why he has to deal with the lost people. And and that's why they are thrown into the lake of fire, because nothing unrighteous will ever enter this eternal state. Now, of this eternal state, we really only have about a chapter at the end of the book of Revelation. This is the streets of gold, the pearly gates, things like that. And we don't have a ton of detail. 
But, you know, Paul says in Corinthians that the eye is not seen, nor is the ear heard, nor is it entered into the mind of man, the wonders that God has in store for us, this kingdom that is to come, this eternal kingdom. And I love the line in Revelation 21.3. It says, then the God's dwelling place is now with men, and he will dwell with them. So while no one except Christ who came from heaven has seen God yet, in eternity we will literally dwell with God. He will be with us forever and ever. And such, that's the eternal state. Such a great study, Jeff. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful study. I don't know what's up next, but I'll look forward to finding out. So that wraps up our show for the day. I want to thank all my guests and especially want to thank uh, Jeff Redorn and Dr. Peter Kapsner for hanging in there with me. It's been a wonderful show. If you missed any of it, I highly recommend you go to MyFaithRadio.com. Definitely check out the podcast. Tomorrow we're going to talk a little Old Testament. David Wheaton's going to continue his story or his uh, study on Exodus and Carolyn Custis James will be part of the Old Testament character series. We're going to talk about Ruth. That's all next. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.